This is Grow Your Life with Jason Scott Montoya, a podcast with stories and systems to live better and work smarter. Welcome to another episode of Listening to Learn as part of the Grow Your Life podcast. I'm Jason Scott Montoya, and in this episode, we're going to talk with entrepreneur, pastoral counselor, and licensed therapist, William Hemphill, about the unrest we're seeing across our nation and how it intersects with the racial divisions in our society. William is also the founder of Faith and Family Empowerment and the host of the Faith and Family Matters podcast. The coronavirus crisis has surfaced numerous issues that Americans have failed to fully deal with, and in the wake of the George Floyd killing has become a tipping point moment. A vast movement of people, ideas, and actions have arisen to explain and solve the problems ailing us. Now is the time for us to listen and learn as we seek out effective solutions to solve these complex problems. And this discussion will dive into the topic of racial reconciliation and what we can learn and apply from the historical events that are unfolding around the country. So thank you so much for joining us, William. Before we jump in, tell us about you, your story, and how your work uniquely intersects with the crises that we're facing. All right, well, hello everybody. My name is William Hemphill. I am a mental health counselor and a pastor. So I work with communities of faith and I work with people who are dealing with issues such as anxiety, depression, so on and so forth. And I also work with married couples, trying to help married couples that have drifted apart. And I'm hoping at some point to do some more work, even with adoptive families and stuff, Mm -hmm. helping them to be able to blend and build better relationships. I like to say my work, I think my work helps in the particular climate that we're in because I feel like with COVID and the racial tensions and different things going on, we're dealing with more anxiety than normal. Mm -hmm. We're dealing with more depression than normal. I mean, I was looking at the news today and someone was talking about being at Walmart, mask mandates going on and worried about folks getting in fights over mask mandates, you know? We shouldn't be fighting over whether to wear a mask or not. I mean, it's (laughs) not really. Not worth it? Is that what you mean? (laughs) Uh, I kind of feel this way. I I feel like we should wear it, not just for us, but more so out of Mm -hmm. concern for other people. As a selflessness. Yeah, as a yeah. selfless act of yeah. dealing and helping with other people. Because mm-hmm. while you might be healthy, you might be healthy because you're asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. And you don't yeah. know who you're going to meet, yeah. who will get it. And even if it doesn't affect them, they might have an elderly parent or yeah. someone with a debilitating sickness at home. Or in some cases, you can be perfectly healthy and it can devastate someone. Yeah, yeah, and, I definitely agree with that. And so I think I'd say doing that out of a selfless act, but one of the things I've noticed is that in times of stress and anxiety, we can get more selfish if we're not mm. careful. Uh, it just as a kind of a, a gut response, we're not necessarily thinking that we're selfish, we're just trying to survive. Is that what you mean? Some of it, I think, is just trying to survive. Some people might be more intentionally selfish than others, but yeah. like, for instance, I don't know if you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, one of the things you couldn't find is toilet paper. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And people were literally fighting over toilet paper. You had to go to Sam's after a while and they had to put limits and then they checked your package to be sure. I remember one time, I think we went there, I went there with my wife and she had her one thing and somebody was grabbing three or four rolls. And I guess my wife just had to to say something. So I said, well, uh, they are checking. They're only going to allow you to get one. And, person said, you don't worry about me. I'll take care of myself. Mm. And I was like, okay, here we go. Yeah. You know, it has but, begun. <laughs> yeah, it has begun, it's begun. But people are looking for some sense of control. Yeah. And that's one of the areas where I think people tried it. I don't understand it, but that's what it <laughs> it's was. It's the outlet. <laughs> yeah, toilet paper, yes. Yeah. So how did you, um, I mean, tell us a little about you. What, what's your, your backstory and how'd you end up in the Atlanta area and what brings you into, into counseling and why, why, why do you do what you do? <laughs> All right. So actually, I've been, I was born in Los Angeles. And so okay. West Coast 
Okay. Well, I'm I'm I was born in Arizona, so we're both Ari- from the West. <laughs> okay. But I have been here pretty much since high school. My mother and stepfather moved here. And so I've okay. been here since high school, graduated yeah. high school here, went to Georgia Tech, was actually in engineering, majored in engineering, graduated, okay. and have worked in corporate America for a number of years. Yeah. And so one of the things I felt in the midst of that was the call to do ministry. And so while I was in corporate America, I went to seminary. Camden okay. School of Theology at Emory University. Oh, okay. I did, do they still have that program? Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. still, yeah. yeah. Still there, still going strong. Yeah. And so one of the things that ended up, and I think actually led me into doing more of the counseling was when we were taking our pastoral care classes, one of the things that a professor said that, is that every pastor should have a therapist. Yeah. Every pastor should have a therapist. And that mm-hmm. is true because the pressures of ministry, you need someone to be able to help. Yeah. And often they, they're kind of feel like they're on their own, right? Or yeah. they feel alone. Yeah. 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 Well, pastoral work can be very isolating if you're not careful. Yeah. So, so I actually took advantage of that. I went to see my therapist. And as I was doing that, I kind of enjoyed some of the work we were doing. and said, this might be a good idea to eventually move into one day. Yeah. So pretty much, I think it was around 2014 or so, I actually went back to school and I've gotten my master's in mental health counseling. And so since then, I've been doing my internship and now I'm doing my own private practice. Awesome. So since when did you uh, launch into uh, your own thing? Well, I officially launched uh, last year and was fully licensed in the state of Georgia in December. Okay, awesome. Well, congratulations. That's exciting. Thank you so much. Yeah. Now, um, how does how does your work uniquely, I mean, you kind of hinted at it a little bit, but how does it uniquely, you, I, I feel in a sense that you're on the front lines. Mm-hmm. So how does, how do you see the world as a therapist when you're dealing with the individuals that are affected by the world? <laughs> well, it's interesting. Like, I would say, like, probably... I don't want to say ever since COVID hit, but I have times where it has spiked or not, where a lot of my sessions with clients has either had to deal with issues surrounding COVID or issues surrounding racial tension in the George Floyd killing, so on and so forth. People trying to process those things. I've had people who were married, whose marriages have improved. I've had people who were going to get divorced, but then they were stuck in the house because of COVID. Oh, interesting, yeah. And so it's a tricky navigation trying to work through all those things. Yeah. And then I like to say even adding to that, dealing with some of the racial tensions, which this is my opinion personally. Yeah. I feel like, well, I feel like it's never gone away. First of all, we've had racial issues since 1619, the slave trade in this country and different things like that. But one of the things I like to say is when stress is up, people begin to act on that stress. Mm. So we're already at COVID. So let's say your normal stress level is one thing. COVID has magnified this thing up because the truth is people don't know whether they're going to live, whether they're going to die. People are losing jobs, businesses, so on and so forth, and different things like that. And so the stress level is magnified a lot. Mm -hmm. And so when you have the stress level magnified a lot, then people are less patient, less willing to work with each other, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So then you add the horrible murder of George Floyd onto that. And I think it just skyrocketed and brought some things further out, really, that should have been addressed for a long time. Yeah. Mm. It was, uh, uh, the way I kind of think of it is, uh, surface the worms (laughs) (laughs) that were there all along. We just didn't see them. so well, I some guess what, people didn't see them. A lot of us well, did see them anyway, but it's just good point. Yeah, it's yeah. it give it's giving visibility to everyone, especially those that might have ignored it, um, or just been shielded from it. So what when you think about we're kind of dealing with a cascading series of crises: the health, the economic, the, the social. How how can we wisely look at this and navigate it? You know that, that that's a very I like to say it's a very, I don't know, a complex question. Maybe <laughs> it is. So maybe I'll answer it with how I try to navigate it and different things like that. 
Yeah. First of all, I tried to navigate it just being a person of faith. Yeah. And so for me, that's trusting in Christ, trusting mm-hmm. that God is going to take care of me and see me through. Yeah. And why that's important is because things are going to go up and down, you know, mm-hmm. in my business, they went up and down. <laughs> yeah. and all this has happened. And, you know, and so you, I've dealt with things, you know, I've had six or seven family members that have had COVID. And so you deal with those things. And so first of all, that is kind of what I'd like to say, my grounding principle. Mm. I think everybody kind of needs a grounding place. Yeah. So I'd say faith is important in that. The second thing I would say is, I'm going to say gratefulness. Mm. I think as Americans, we forget that we have a whole lot. One of the privileges I'd say that I did have is when my father, he was doing a revival, I think somewhere in the Bahamas, Virgin Islands somewhere. Yeah. When I was in college, he took me with him. Mm. And so in the midst of that, we went around the countryside and we saw the way some of the people were living. Yeah. I call it 10 houses because I can't describe it any better on yeah. the hillside. We saw power going in and out constantly if a little bit of wind and rain comes in, different things like that. And so we saw different levels of poverty and stuff like that. And one of the things it allowed me to be in myself was more grateful for what I have. Mm. You know, we got roofs over our heads. That's a blessing. We have clean water to drink. That's a blessing. We have food to eat. That's a blessing. So would you say that, is it, is it a Matt, is it a kind of that visibility thing? Is it that we just don't realize what we have or are we looking, is it that we're looking for the things we don't have and we miss sight of what we do have? I think a lot of it is looking at what we don't have. Okay. Cause I think what happens, the natural thing is to take something for granted when you do have it. Got it. Yeah. One, one of the things I like about my work as a marriage counselor, it helps me to be thankful for my wife. Yeah. <laughs> You know, sitting here, especially in COVID, and we're getting along and like each other. Yeah. I realize that because I'm working with a lot of people who don't like each other. Yeah, not everyone has that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so sometimes just sitting back and just saying, you know, just being thankful for it, especially when things get hectic or Mm -hmm. crazy and anxiety wants to go back up, just sit back. You know, maybe I made it through another day. My kids are fine. We don't know whether we're going to go to school virtually or not or what they're going to do and what we're going to do about that, but that's going to work itself out and we'll make the best decision that we can. Mm -hmm. And so it's just sitting back and being grateful for some of these things. Yeah. Even virtual school is an option. One of the things I remember talking to some people and one of the challenges they had was, okay, they couldn't work at home or if they were working at home, forced to work at home. It's kind of like, how do you take care of your kids while you're trying to work? Yeah. And work doesn't understand <laughs> that you've got a five-year-old that wants some food right now. Yeah. Or needs to go to the bathroom or whatever yeah. <laughs> else. And the type of job probably depends on like how, how critical that or much of an issue that could be for the individual or the company. Yeah, it, it does. I mean, one of the things that I've had fun and I've just kind of laughed with it about is I've done sessions and sometimes people are in sessions and they're rocking a baby or they're talking and all of a sudden the kid comes in and they want to apologize. I say, look, I understand it's life. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, that's good. So, so getting grounded and being grateful, mm-hmm. uh, was there uh, anything more to more of that? Are those the kind of the two pillars that, that underpin us being able to navigate the, the crazy storms of life? I, I think those are two major pillars right there. Yeah. Because I would also say those in some ways are two things we kind of can control. Yeah. We can't control whether someone wears a mask or not outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we can't even control whether schools are open. We can't control that. Yeah. <laughs> so I look at things that are in our control per se. We just try to do the best with those things. Yeah. You know, another one I'm thinking of, and those two pillars are part of it, is just even the aspect of self-care. One of the things I do, you know, instead of being locked in the house all day, at some point I try to take a walk. Yeah. Yeah. Schedule a break, take a walk. 
Now it's a lot harder when it's 95 degrees outside. <laughs> yeah, wait till the evening. evening. But <laughs> so I guess, yeah, yeah. I mean, so self-care, would that be, you know, play? That would be exercise? It would be breaks, rest? Play, eat. exercise, rest, breaks, yeah. eating, yeah. doing things like spending time with family as much as you can, you know, mm, even yeah. using like we're meeting over here via video, using video calls or something yeah. like that on the phone, doing things like that, doing what we can do. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. So let's let's talk about the social unrest that we're seeing, you know, as a result of George Floyd's death and and just the horror of that and how that unfolded. And um, and you talked about the visibility and you know, these problems aren't necessarily new. So we, but we have seemed to have reached a bullying point as a country. So what's going on, and and how should we be looking at this, not in a cynical way, but in a way that, that can be uh, a part of the solution and not a contributor to the problem? Okay. Well, first things first, I'd like to say, I think one of the reasons George Floyd was a catalyst is because it was so horrific. Mm -hmm. Basically, on camera, you had someone executed for nine plus minutes. Mm -hmm. And I think it was so bad that almost no one can justify it. Yeah. There was no explaining it away. Yeah, there, there, there really was no explaining that away at all. Mm -hmm. Even someone who might be maybe the most conservative or yeah. most police-friendly person that doesn't believe any issues with police brutality exist, yeah. or someone who thinks there's no racism or anything like that, they couldn't deny that. Yeah. That's, that's just how bad that one was. Yeah. And so what it did was it became a catalyst for people, I believe, to go out and begin protesting and doing yeah. things to make change. And I admire that, you know, folks are out protesting, folks are doing things. Yeah. People are having discussions, books like mm -hmm. White Fragility and different things are going on. I've been on several different podcasts talking about issues with race and mental health and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I think, for me, here's the real test. A year from now is the real test. Yeah. Who's still talking and doing in a year? Yeah. Who's still talking? Who's still doing? who's still trying to implement change and different things mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. I think that is when the real test becomes because although it's not in the headlines as much right now, there's still stuff going on. Yeah. There's and so is that test one of, well, who, who is just virtue single signaling and who actually cares about solving it? Is that kind of what you're saying about that? I would say who cares about solving it, but then one of the things we have to be careful of is not getting distracted. Mm. You know, life will distract you. <laughs> yeah, even <laughs> for just, less severe issues. <laughs> yeah, 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 your life will distract you. If your child gets sick, right now when the, your child gets sick, you're not worried about George Floyd as much, you're worried about caring about your child. Yeah. Just an example. You go back out in the economy, you want to go on vacations, you want to do all these different things. Yeah. And so what I would say for people is always keep some interest in, always stay plugged in and always look at avenues, whether it's organizations, different things like that to continue to help because we want to keep the focus on it. Mm -hmm. So what would you say are some of the fundamental brutal facts that we need to to look at and and look around it and and really to embrace when when you're talking about these racial issues that we're facing. Okay, I would say some of the brutal facts are this: realize that America, our country as a whole, has been engaged in the systematic racism and oppression of people of African descent since 1619. That's when the slave trade actually began. Okay. Um, I wish I could remember the author right now, but I just talked about this person the other day, and they talked about where the phrase white actually began. 
Okay. And, and this was before 1776, and I believe it was in Maryland, Virginia area. There was a rebellion called Bacon's Rebellion. Okay. And what was that rebellion was about was about mistreatment of people. Mm -hmm. What was going on at that time is you had people who were indentured servants and or slaves who were technically black and white. It wasn't just by African skin. It was by, yeah. I don't know, probably your economic status, so on and so yeah. forth. What happened is this group of people realized they were being oppressed and had a rebellion. Mm. And so the rebellion was eventually put down by the British. Okay. But the wealthy elite property owners said, we have to find a way to keep this from happening again. Yeah. And so what they decided, instead of dividing people British, African, uh, European, Portuguese, or whatever else, they made this classification called white. Okay. And so what they did was, even though a lot of the white indentured servants were still poor, they made them feel better than people of African descent. So they did things like people of African descent. You can't own guns. You can't interracial marry. You can't own property. You got to mm -hmm. be in by a certain time. You had all of these different rules that came in. And yeah. I like to say the big trick that occurred is that people who were quote unquote white who were being oppressed now thought they were different in the sense, well, at least I am not a black person. Yeah. And at the same time, those who were rich, elite, wealthy property owners, male British folks, were taking money from both sides. Got it. So. I like to call that the trick, but I think a lot of us don't know it. And it's been so ingrained in our history. It's been ingrained in our religion. It's been ingrained in so many systems that most people don't even recognize that systemic racism exists. Mm -hmm. And what, how would you define that? What does that mean to you? I would say systems that promote one set of people over another. Okay. Knowing another. So for example, we talk about the school of prison pipeline. Okay. One of the things I know that they've done studies when they're building privatized prisons and stuff, they do the studies and they can tell based on the third grade reading levels how many people may go to prison. Okay. And so when you put in certain areas lower quality schools, don't give them the resources the books, the things that they need, the computers, the technology, it automatically puts harder struggles on people in those areas. Yeah. And so the prison pipeline wants that, especially if you're making money off of it because we need more people. Mm -hmm. You know, that's one of the things that talks about the 13th Amendment. When you look at the 13th Amendment, you're still looking at people who can be slaves because they are prisoners. Mm -hmm. So that becomes free labor that a lot of people use. Mm, so you talk it. about that. You talk about police systems and how in many cases they were started to regulate the movements of African people of African descent. Okay. Slave traders, so on and so forth. You're escaping, we bring you back. If you look like you're a slave, we can question you, different things like that. And so you have a lot of these things that have been in place. Redlining where you, where you set up systems where only certain people can live in certain areas and you yeah. price the real estate accordingly or mm -hmm. do different things like that. Yeah. So it, what else? What would you say? So I, I think you're talking about a lot of the history in terms of mm. this is our, the history of our country. And, and while there's a lot of great things to be grateful for, mm. we also have to acknowledge um, where we have failed. Um, so what is, what is the brutal facts today? How, how would you say when we look at, look at it now, is it, what, what is, what is the, um, point of view we should embrace when we look at these things? Okay. Well, when I look at it, the first thing I think is for people to understand and get an acknowledgement of it. Mm -hmm. So acknowledging it is critical. Because the first thing we got to do is be able to listen to even have a discussion. I'll give you an example. Okay. Before George Floyd was killed, 
Ahmaud Arbery was killed down in mm -hmm. Brunswick, Savannah, Georgia. Yeah. I remember getting in a discussion on social media with somebody. And this guy, well, basically swore that I didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> he felt like that Ahmaud Arbery should not have jogged into an empty house under construction. Okay. Something that apparently the camera showed several other people did that day. Got it. And so he felt like this guy was wrong and mm -hmm. felt like that these people who were not officers had the right to stop him mm -hmm. with guns. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he could not see where that had a lot to do with race. Mm -hmm. But then here's the other thing even about the Ahmaud Arbery killing. If one of the people didn't decide he was going to film that on camera, I don't know why he filmed it on camera, if it was for his buddies or whatever else, and it got to a radio station and they didn't release that, those guys would still be free because the DA there in Brunswick was going to cover it up. Mm -hmm. He couldn't hear that. Yeah. <laughs> well, part of it, when I, when I hear the way you describe that conversation is, he it's almost like he wanted to explain it because not explaining it means facing that the re, the brutal fact that there is evil mm -hmm. and that people can 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 do very evil things and that's a scary thing to, to acknowledge but i don't know if, if you if you see it that way but that that's what came to my mind when i heard that is um uh, we don't fa facing evil is a very challenging thing for us to to do yeah. Facing evil is a challenging thing to do, but one of the things, I, especially as I've gotten older, is if good people keep silent, yeah. we allow evil to flourish. Mm -hmm. And then evil is going to do what it's going to do, so yeah. it's our responsibility to resist it at all yeah. levels. And, and this guy, whether he recognizes that or not, in a way he's enabling evil to thrive is what you're he's not just being silent he's actually advocating he's he's actually was letting something like that thrive and i like the way yeah. you said that yeah and i'm not gonna say i know whether he realizes it or not but he's yeah. actually allowing that to thrive and i think that is part of the problem with our silence is that we allow evil to thrive mm. And but I think some of that is because we don't fully. Uh, it's almost like looking into our history, like as a world, you know, looking into the Nazi history and the Holocaust and Russia and and the Gulag. So it, it's even reading about that stuff is really challenging. Mm -hmm. uh, so that I I think there is a denial component that ties into that. So, but I, I guess I'm curious, you know. We talked. You mentioned the systemic piece. You know, how would you differentiate the systemic piece from the individual uh, responsibility, and even the dance between the two? Okay. Uh, political parties. You know, you have one that tends to be system oriented. One tends to be responsibility oriented, and it's not either or. Um, but how do you look at that? Well, it, I'd agree with just not either or. It's in a sense both. Yeah. So let's look at. Part the individual piece, which kind of goes to some of the challenges people had. Yeah. I had a chance a few years ago, as a matter of fact, it was when I was in school, I sat at an, I'd say a multicultural church. And I believe this was probably after Trayvon Martin was killed. And they were having discussions on race. Okay. And I happened to be able to attend this one. I was glad, but one of the things I learned while I was sitting there is you had some Anglo white people were talking about, I could agree with you that this killing was horrible. I could agree with you in some instances, systemic oppression. I can yeah. agree with you about microaggressions and stuff. They said their challenge was when they go back home and talk to Aunt Judy or Uncle Bob, or their father or their great-grandfather who's had all these issues for so long, or their family members. Mm -hmm. A lot of them were worried about being criticized, ostracized, or even removed from some of their family members. Okay. And I would say that is a very real threat, especially if you grew up with some of these folks, you love them, this and that, and whatever else. Yeah. 
And so there's family pressure to conform back to a certain way. Mm. And so they were struggling with some of those challenges. Okay. Here's the thing that I invite some of them, but really all of us to do this. You talk about standing for good and righteousness. It always comes with a cost. Yeah. Comes with a cost. We had two people who died recently, Reverend C.T. Vivian, Representative John Lewis, mm -hmm. who were there in the civil rights movement and had done different things. Yeah. Those men took a lot. I was looking at a clip the other day where C.T. Vivian was leading some folk, and I believe it was in Alabama, trying to get voting rights, bringing some folks so they could mm -hmm. exercise the right to vote. The sheriff and the police forces blocked them, and he's sitting there talking to them. And the sheriff gets so angry that he punches C.T. Vivian in the mouth, knocks yeah. him down. Gets and they up. were being completely peaceful, right? Yeah, they were being yeah. completely peaceful. And yeah. there was blood coming all over his face. And of course, they still continued onward anyway. Mm -hmm. Because there is a cost. There were people who were killed in the civil rights movement yeah. during that time. There have been people who died trying to fight for the rights because... One of the things that I like to say is power generally doesn't give up power willingly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think when we look at this at a systemic level or individual or however we want to see it, it can be overwhelming in the sense of, well, it's such a big problem. How, how can I as a person really make a difference? So what would you say to people that, that want to contribute but don't even know where to start? I would say immediately probably start one person at a time. I was talking with someone to, earlier today and I think this is a real key. Build a relationship with someone who might be different from you. Yeah. Because here's the power. When you build a relationship, you start to see people as human mm -hmm. instead of the other. Yeah. Because dehumanizing is really the starting point of, of, of discrimination, right? Yeah, dehumanizing yeah. is a bit, it's a start of discrimination, it's a start of oppression, it's a start of different things, like all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And so building relationships and building bridges with other people makes them more human. Yeah. And some of that, even though it's tough in the coronavirus world, might be able to do that yeah. <laughs> Individually and collectively and in person instead of just on social media, different things like that. Yeah. And even I think just how we do life, like mm -hmm. the people that go to our church and the people that live in our neighborhood and, you know, that who we live with also can be an organic way to, to experience our way through that. And although sometimes it's be intentional about going out of our way, if that's not the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah, and in some places it is harder than in other places. You know, if you yeah. live in a rural area where it's mostly whites, it might be a little harder to do that, but yeah. it still takes some intentionality mm -hmm. in doing that. I'm yeah. always struck when I think about this. I still remember this clip today. There was a clip, and I believe, for lack of a better term, I'll say Tea Party right wing people, they were having a meeting a protest in DC. And so they were talking and then some folks with some Black Lives Matter shirts happened to show up. Mm -hmm. And of course they were protesting the meeting. And so, you know, there were times little words were going forth and stuff like that. Yeah. So the guy who was leading the meeting actually invited one of the persons from the black, who had the Black Lives Matter shirts on. They started having a discussion and found up everyone. Yeah. Here was the powerful thing about that discussion. They discovered we all want good jobs. We all want safe neighborhoods. We all want good medical care. <laughs> we all want the best for our family. So you have all of these interests in common. Yeah, shared values. Yes, but people were fighting because they couldn't see it. Mm. And so I don't know if those two young men are still having dialogue or whatever else, but it changed the mood to even at the end of it, a lot of the people who were tea parties were clapping for the guy who's a black lives. Yeah. yeah. 
because at the end of the day, you wanted the same things. Mm -hmm. And, and there, and there isn't, it it doesn't have to be a zero sum game. We can all, we can all win, right? It's not, it doesn't have to be some winners and some losers. We can. And in fact, if we all win together, we all win to a greater degree. Yeah. Yeah. You you talk about zero sum game. And I think I talked about this a little bit with my church yesterday that Jesus was teaching his disciples. Well, he had his disciples and he had the crowds and they were teaching. Yeah. The disciples said, okay, we need to let them go get something to eat. Mm -hmm. Here's a boy right there with two fish and five loaves of bread. Now, that doesn't seem like a lot to feed 5,000 people. I'll admit, even my math doesn't see that. I don't don't know how you make that. But God prays, blesses it, and then it's distributed. And as it's given, somehow everybody has enough. And then even the disciples have plenty to left to eat. Yeah. Here's the thing. So long as it stayed in that boy's hands, it would have fed one person. Mm -hmm. But when we gave it to God and started blessing others, a whole lot of other people got fed. And everybody had enough. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess let's kind of dive into that a little bit more. You know, as Christians who believe that humans are made in the image of God and that the unity of community is found in the Trinity, (laughs) Mm -hmm. how should we be looking at it? Um, And how should we respond? be responding, I think, as leaders and as examples to the rest of our country? I think a lot of the things that I've said already, mm-hmm. we begin to model, no matter your racial makeup, Yeah, begin to treat other people as human beings and advocate for them. Mm-hmm. Part of that in that leadership, I would say, even understanding that there might be a cost to depending on who you're talking to. There's a pastor in Mississippi, I can't remember his name, but I read the article like this past week or week and a half ago. He lost his church because he saw what was going on with George Floyd and racial injustice. And he started speaking about the importance of Christians standing up for that. Yeah. His church first told him, pastor, that's too much stuff on race. We don't think you should do that. Gave him a couple warnings, he did that. And finally they said, pastor, you can't serve here anymore. Now, the good thing for him, and I really hope his church is packed, he decided he's going to start a church in the community. I hope it's packed out and his family's well taken care of and everything like that. But it's that courage to begin to model it. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things I tell people, so yes, I'm an African-American male, but I'm a person of faith. I'm a Christian. And so because of my faith in Christ, I do see color, I do see culture, but I respect the uniqueness understanding that God made each and every one of us. Mm -hmm. And so that's where it comes in, recognizing that we made the human, that God made us all human beings. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just thinking, yeah, just the, it kind of goes back to what you started out saying was about the mass and just being selfless. And when I think about God, you know, God is selfless um, as as part of his character and he's selfless in in his sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And until we fully experience that gift and that embrace that sacrifice, um, it's hard to give something we don't have, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to give something we have. And here's the thing about it, just thinking about that. When we think about what God did, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son to condemn the world, but through him that the world would be saved. When you begin to think about that, the brutality of the cross. Yeah. I like to talk about the Garden of Gethsemane experience before then. He said, notice Jesus prayed three times. Hey, if somebody else could take, look, I <laughs> don't want to plan B this. we could go with. <laughs> <laughs> Can we do something else? Yeah. But then he always said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Yeah. That's the sacrifice it calls of us. Not yeah. my will, but your will be done. Yeah. So even though I might have my prejudices and my judgments, I lay them aside to demonstrate and give the love of Christ. 
even though I may not quite understand it, I laid him aside to listen to someone just to hopefully be, maybe be able to understand a little bit of what they see from their experience and yeah. then try to empathize with them in such a way that I can relate to them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, I guess, I, I think there is an aspect. Well, tell me what you think about how much of these issues also have to deal with the American, our pride and our ego and our arrogance. Um, I feel like the, we're, in, we're in the great American humbling season right now. Um, I don't, what are your thoughts on that? I was talking with someone the other day, and of course, you know, we were talking about what's God doing? Why did God allow this? So on and so forth. And I was sitting there thinking, you know what? God probably allowed it to show our ugliness. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting because I was talking with someone and we know that President Trump talked about he was going to build a wall on the south border to keep everybody out. Yeah. I'm sitting there thinking, you know, we have successfully built a wall, but it's another way. We're all in now. Nobody wants us to come to their country. <laughs> We're the losers. Bahamas the other day, Europe has said it. Canada has said it. I think Mexico may have said it. And I'm sure there are other countries that follow. We may not be able to go anywhere soon. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be the hot spot in the world. Yeah, we are the hot spot in the world. Yeah. Well, and I unfortunately, think, I think a lot of that, forgive me, a lot of that is just due to our selfishness. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess that's one of the things that we're, we're so quick to villainize others and so mm -hmm. quick to, to criticize others, but we're so um, resistant to the idea that, that we are... Um, potential you know we have the potential to be evil we have the potential um to be corrupted we have the potential to be infallible you know uh, fallible so mm -hmm. um but yet we resist that again it's the hypocrisy of how how easy we can make others the villain and how yes. how much we make ourselves the hero mm -hmm. it, yeah. it, it, it's very easy but for the grace of god there go i yeah it is, but for the grace of God, we can easily be the oppressor instead of the oppressed. Mm -hmm. But for the grace of God, we can be the ones harming instead of healing. Yeah. That's why it's so important to have that spiritual grounding in faith and trust in God, but then also that gratefulness and that empathy. Mm -hmm. Realizing that what we have are gifts from God. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. What else would you like to, anything else you had in mind that you wanted to share that we didn't get a chance to, to dive into? Yeah, well, I'm thinking of something that I'm actually doing a little bit, formulating more on my podcast. I was on another podcast and I've been using the term learn quite a bit, L-E-A-R-N. Yeah. And when I've thought about it when it comes to racial relations, but really it happens with any of our relationships. Yeah. The L stands for listening. Listening not just to respond, but to listen to hear. Yeah. Because a lot of times, whether it's marriage relationships or different things like that, we listen just to respond. Mm -hmm. I see it quite a bit. I joke, I see quite a bit with my kids. Because <laughs> I sit there and laugh, and you know, one's arguing, and the next one's arguing, and they're trying to get louder and out talk each other and call names and stuff like that. Yeah. And it's kind of funny, other than when you're a parent and get stressed with it. <laughs> <laughs> But then I look when I counsel people and I'm like, this same dynamic goes mm. on. And then I look when we start talking about things like Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice and all of these different things that have happened. Some of the same dynamic is going on. Yeah. People are listening to respond instead of listening to hear. Mm. The second thing, the E, I call it empathy. The okay. ability to put ourselves in another person's shoes yeah i was talking with another podcast and one of the things when we started talking about empathy and i talked about especially there are parts of georgia where sometimes i do walk with a swivel on my head you know yeah just because of some of the things that have happened there or whatever else and one of the things that helped him understand is when he said he went to a foreign country and didn't know the language didn't know anybody didn't know everything so he was hyper vigilant yeah he was moving around but that gave us a point of contact to begin to relate. 
listening with empathy allows us to place ourselves in other people's shoes. Mm -hmm. And so I think when we start talking about the George Floyd killing, I think there are a lot of people that imagined, and they actually did this as an action of protest, laying on the ground for nine minutes until you're dead in a yeah. certain position and you're helpless. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the big things that happened. There happened to be some empathy that came forth and it touched people's hearts. Yeah. So then we have the A. I like to say act with responsibility within our sphere of influence. Okay. All of us have a sphere of influence. People who listen to us, people who are watching us, people who are influenced by us, and whether that's our families, our friends at churches, or different things like that. So within our sphere of influence, you asked me earlier how we make a difference. We try to make a difference in that sphere of influence. Okay. We try to give people different viewpoints and different understanding within that sphere, and hopefully yeah. that begins to expand and make a further difference. Okay. And so that's what I'd say the A is. The mm. R stands for resisting the temptation to draw back. Okay. Because there's going to be resistance. Yeah. You know, when I talked about those folks who were at the church, when they went home and they saw Aunt Judy and Uncle Bob, that's resistance. Yeah. How dare you? You've been around those liberal folk too long. Something <laughs> wrong with you. <laughs> Some of them might call you an in-lover. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, how dare you vote Democrat or whatever, whatever people say. Yeah. But know that resistance is going to come. Mm -hmm. That naturally happens. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just thinking about this. Have you ever wondered why someone, let's say they're addicted to alcohol, they go into the rehab facility, they get clean, they start doing well, they do everything else. But when they get out, they end up falling back into it. Yeah. It seems to happen pretty often. Like a, It does. Yeah. A lot of it is resistance from the environment. The environment is helping, is contributing it, more than their own will. Yes, that, the yeah. environment is contributing more. Because when you come back home, your best friend who knows you've been in rehab is going to say, come on, let's go out and get a drink. No, nah, no. Nah, yeah. Nah. Well, and that's... Yeah. 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 Cause I was going to say, I think a lot of our goodness mm. is, is the fact that we live in a, in a system or in a context that makes us better than we would be if we were outside of it. Yeah. Yeah. Context. If, if we were, if we were to go live in a, a city in Africa and like a, you know, without these kind of cultural tensions, we might behave a little bit differently. <laughs> so I think we have to always question our own goodness. I, that's something that comes to mind. Yeah, yeah, we, we definitely have to question our own goodness. But like I was saying, resistance always comes. Yeah. Whenever we try to make change, resistance is going to come. So mm -hmm. even for example, it started, you know, people were talking about defunding the police or police reforms or whatever else. Some areas, police unions started striking back. Yeah. You know, even here in Atlanta at some point, it was like, okay, we're going to call a sick out. Mm-hmm. And so they did a sick out yeah. because of that, because there's always going to be resistance whenever you try to do right. Mm -hmm. So that's there. And then I always say the end is never quit. Okay. Just don't quit. Yeah. We're going to be doing this. I say, as long as we're here on this earth. Yeah. Well, and I guess, I guess that's the other question then is, you know, this, this is an ongoing fight. It's an inter, mm -hmm. it's a multi-generational transition yeah. right and that resistance is hard um but i think over generations you see see the movement so what um you know how, how would you kind of advise people to look at it in that sense that um you know can we get to perfect or or is it just a matter of making things a little bit better um a little bit better than what they were given to us make it a little better what i think thoughts? part of it is our responsibility just to make it better mm -hmm. you know we talked about earlier ct vivian getting punched in the face and different things like that because of people like him i got the right to vote mm -hmm. and even because of a lot of people that have the right to vote then for eight years we had a president of african descent and president obama 
yeah. something yeah. that most of us never thought we'd see in our lifetime. Mm. I mean, but even though we had that, there's still a lot to be done. Because mm-hmm. even though Obama was president, it still didn't stop school to prison pipeline, still didn't stop a lot of redlining, still didn't stop issues with police brutality, still didn't stop a lot of different things, and still didn't stop many people dealing with their prejudices inside of their hearts and their culture. And so that's why I say it still continues onward. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I'm a person who says it's both and. It's a personal responsibility, individual responsibility, but it's also call upon us to address systems that oppress. Yeah. And, that, and that's beyond just simply racial uh, mm-hmm. oppression, right? Yeah. It's gender oppression, so many different things. I was on a call earlier today. And I was talking to someone and we were talking about women, of course, growing different things like that and how many people want to resist that. Mm. You know, I remember seeing interviews when after Hillary Clinton did not get elected, I saw some where women were saying they didn't feel like a woman had a place being president. Mm. And I was like, wow. Yeah. I could understand if you disagree with her politics, that's one thing, but not to vote for her just because she is a woman, that's a whole different thing in and of itself. Yeah. Which means that lets us know we have work to do. <laughs> yeah. So how would you, dif- how would you uh, differentiate the differences between, let's say, bias, prejudice, and, and, and racism or sexism, whatever the, the area of oppression, how would you distinguish the difference between those? I would say, just thinking about that, um, bias is something we all have. Mm-hmm. We naturally have it. It comes from our experiences, come different things like that. Bias is individual, and we usually can confront it. Mm-hmm. One of the differences that I would say racism occurs is it usually occurs from someone who has more power okay or the potential for more power i'll give you an example i think it was christian cooper up in new york uh this happened a few weeks ago too he's walking black man i believe and then there's this young lady i think she has her dogs unleashed in a place that she wasn't supposed to have it okay and so he asked addressed her about her dog ma'am can you leash your dog up so on and so forth She said she went to call the police on him. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing about that, talking about power. There have been many black men who have been killed just based on the accusations of a white woman. Mm -hmm. If you know Emmett Till's story, a young boy in Mississippi years ago was killed, lynched, brutally murdered. The lady who said that he quote unquote whistled at her near her deathbed confession said he didn't do it. Yeah. That's something that looks individual, but I would call that racism because you have the power to harm somebody based on your prejudices and biases and maybe willing to use it. Mm. So that's where I would say a big big difference lies in that. Yeah. And is that that usually a majority-minority tension? Is that kind of what you're, in terms of the... If, if you are part of a major, majority, um, you have more potential to leverage that? Um. I would say yes. If you're part of a majority, you have more potential to, potential to leverage that. And I would even say it's necessarily just race. I remember when I was in my mental health counseling class, I remember some, some of the young ladies talking about being unsafe to walk certain places at night. Some yeah. places that I didn't even think about the day and night because I'm a pretty big man. Yeah. But see, just thinking about something like that and not addressing something like that makes a big difference. Yeah. 
And so it can operate in a lot of ways. That's why it calls us to get rid of our selflessness because we all benefit in some ways from this. Yeah, I, I, I mean, we all have different advantages and disadvantages mm-hmm. and, and some have more skewed one way or the other. Um, and I think it is important to recognize um, what those are. And it kind of goes back to your point about gratefulness. I think mm-hmm. we can, you know, what it, in, and ultimately, you know, back, back to Christ, you know, we are all completely empty of anything without him, without the source yes. of life, we have none. Yes. And so anything beyond that is, is to be grateful for him. And then anything um, that is sort of uh, societal or community or family. Um, but we're called to fill the gaps where others um, have them, right? Yeah, we're, we're called to make a difference. I'm reminded the passage that we're salt, the salt and the light of the earth, the salt loses its seasoning. What good is it to be trampled upon and stepped, yeah. stepped upon and thrown out? And so that may or may not even mean we are the majority, but we're called to make a difference in the yeah. world. So I guess on that note, I mean, what, what are your thoughts when it comes to discipleship and how, is, how important is that in this whole situation where in, in solving the problem, both short and long-term and local and global? Well, the, discipleship <laughs> is a big thing. And okay, this will come as one of my, I don't know, I'd say some personal criticisms. I think I'll speak for at least my experience seeing in America. We do better job making church members than we do disciples. Yeah. In other words, we come put your name on the roll. If you give <laughs> a couple dollars here or something like that, we'll do that. If you give quite a few dollars, we might give you a position for <laughs> church or something like that. But do we call people to read and study the scriptures, pray together? hold each other accountable, do those different things that I think are so important in building our faith. Do we open our Bible on more than Sunday morning when the pastor points out a scripture? Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, making this, like I'd say, a walk or of life or a way of living. Yeah. A way of life is, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. really what it's about. It's, it's a gamble in the sense that we're putting all of our life into this um, decision and this commitment. Yeah. So what, what are your final words of wisdom for us um, for, as we wrap up here? Uh, I would say just my final words of wisdom. I would say continue to work, to love, to transform one day at a time. I would say in a world of anxiety and different things like that, ground yourself in faith in Christ, first and foremost of all. Second of all, look at the blessings you have around you and be grateful for them. And three, be willing to be a blessing to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Giving time, giving money, sharing your gifts, whatever it is, be a blessing to someone else especially during a time and season when we're in a world that I think needs a lot more love Yeah, during this time. Cool. Well, thank you for sharing. Uh, tell us about how people can connect with you. You know, I know you got the podcast, your website, tell, uh, what social media channels are you on? Okay. Well, I'll, I'll share a few things real quick. Yeah. So, uh, number one, I am a mental health and a pastoral counselor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find me at williamhemphill.com, W-I-L-L-I-A-M-H-E-M-P-H-I-L-L.com. I, you can also put FFE for Faith and Family Empowerment, FFEonline.org. That okay. will direct you to my website. I'm doing individual couples counseling and family counseling, so you can find out more information about that there. I am also a pastor of a Methodist church, a Methodist church in the Covington area, the Spring Hill United Methodist Church, springhillumc.org. We broadcast on Sundays on our website at 1015, where I'll usually give a message for different things for the week. And then also there's the Faith and Family Matters podcast, which is located on iTunes, on Spotify, on Stitcher, and I believe iHeartRadio. Okay. We bring out a new episode Right now, it's lately, it's been every two weeks because I've been so busy. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much, we'll talk about matters of faith, family, 
mental health, and society, and how all of those things relate together. Solo episodes, we're getting in the process of preparing to do some interviews and different things like that. So yeah. please join and check that out. And then the final thing is, if you're looking for something to strengthen your marriage, I have a book, Praying for Your Spouse, A Secret to Building Intimacy in Your Marriage. It's located on Amazon.com. Okay. Look for Praying for Your Spouse or look for my name. Now, here's easier <laughs> to find out my name. Praying yeah. for Your Spouse, last name, Hemphill. So. Yeah. And then are you on social media at all? Uh, I'm on social media, uh, Faith. Uh, you find me, William Hemphill, Pastor or Counselor, Faith and Family Empowerment. That's on Facebook. Uh, on Instagram, it's face dash underscore and dash and underscore family underscore empowerment. And so that's my Instagram handle. And so I'm on those two areas also. Okay. And I'll include all the links on, on, uh, on the page on my website so that people can access that more easily. Um, cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing your life with us and your wisdom and giving us a chance to learn from you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me and having me. Everybody take care. Be blessed and be a blessing. Thank you. For additional stories and systems to work smarter and live better, visit jasonscottmontoya.com. That's jasonscottmontoya.com. Thank you for joining us on this episode, and we look forward to having you listen in to the next episode of Grow Your Life.